Welcome back to Stories from the Wild, a conversation with Bishop Paul Varane. This is part two. We've been exploring this remarkable man's life and work in South Africa. He's witnessed the excruciating detail of subtle and overt trauma in thousands of people. Now, we all have what trauma therapists call a window of tolerance, where we can see, hear, feel or witness so much distress and no more before we begin to experience discomfort and symptoms pointing to trauma. Yet he, after nearly 40 years of frontline trauma counselling work and several significant personal traumas, is as vigorous, clear and compassionate as ever. His eyes sparkle and he smiles a lot. Of course his life has been messy, but whose hasn't? On an intensely personal level, he's survived devastating attacks, such as the horror show that Winnie Madikizela Mandela unleashed on him in Soweto in 1998, when she publicly, falsely, accused him of molesting children. One of those children, Stompy Sepe, was abducted and murdered by her bodyguard. If this isn't enough to break anyone, Paul also weathered the fallout of years of fierce anti-apartheid activism. I was intensely curious about how he'd managed to remain functional after such brutality. Well, I'm deeply suspicious of power. I don't think any of us has any clue of what can happen to us when we get into power that is not accountable. You know, I've been a bishop in a church, you know, and and I know, and... And the church sanctifies some stuff that's really itchy and dishonest, you know. So I, I suppose that to come back to your earlier question, there are, there are a few things that enable me. I had asked him what keeps him going, what fuels his empathy. I think friends. Uh, I've, got, I've got spectacular friends, you know. I mean, I've got a friend called Terry Sacco. She holds a doctorate in social work. And she comes every, every Monday, we go together to spend time with the children in, at Soweto. And, and she, I know she respects me, I respect her, but it's nothing for Terry to tell me to fuck off. You know? <laughs> Nobody says that to me, particularly because I'm you know, a bishop. You know what I mean? Uh, or was a bishop or whatever, you know. And, and I think that that kind of sanity, that there is a good crap detector in your own creation of your own idolatry, is hella important. I'm interested in, in how people recover from extreme distress and, and trauma. In your life, you've, you've had a lot of, a lot of trauma uh, and distress in these big events, and I wanted to know how you recovered from... Um, from the whole nightmare of Stompy Sepe's murder. I don't know whether recover, um, but let me say two things, two or three things. I mean, <clears throat> I was completely immobilized to begin with, you know. They felt I shouldn't come back. They felt all the rest of it. And I actually was away with my family, you know. And, um, I, I mean, I just, there, there were 
there, there were about 10 days, I think it was, that, I mean, it was so dark. You know, I actually couldn't think of anything else other than how, how to get rid of myself. You know, I, I, I really had, you know, and then had to come back. Um, <clears throat> and I was part of a group called the Detainees Counseling Service, actually. So one of the, and, and, and the group consisted of psychiatrists and psychologists and social workers. And what we did was people would go into detention and when they came out, or prison, under the Internal Security Act, and, and invariably they'd been tortured. And the torture ranged through a whole variety of stuff, from uh, electrical shocks to beatings to solitary confinement to long times of interrogation. And so I came back and had some obviously very spectacular friendships in that group. You know, I'd, I'd come back from a meeting of the Detainees Counselling Service when we were actually talking through um, what we were experiencing in the narratives of people who were coming out of detention. There was also a group of doctors that we worked with very closely called NAMDA. So a person would come out, they would have a physical examination to check that everything was in order. But it was more than that. The investigation by the doctor into their body was a completely opposite experience to the invasion of their bodies with the torturers and the hatred that they experienced. And then they would come and see a, a therapist. And so I suppose my own stuff was walking very closely with Bram Fisher's daughter, who's a clinical psychologist, and her husband, Michael Rice, who, who was a teacher, an educationalist. And, and that home became a, a, a safe space with many of my other friends. Um, and, um, I mean, that journey was, was quite phenomenal, you know. I mean, that was one of the ways. Uh, I suppose... You know, I had been in this context for a year. And, um, I mean, the, the, the church people were just phenomenal. You know, I would go with Bible women um, uh, who were much, much older. And they would take me into the most unbelievable circumstances. You know, of people who were shut in, and I would have to uh, take communion to them, and so on a weekly basis. And I actually think that the journeying into those places of of the other, and needing to to listen to what was happening there, and then those, particularly one Bible woman. 
they were very different. The one was almost a militant, shall I say, Christian, and she would come and tell me what my week was going to look like from her prayer times. You know, this week's going to be... Because, of course, then the trial came out and it was all that uh, exposure. And then uh, I think someone like Peter Story, you know, who who was beyond phenomenal. He was responsible as my bishop um, and was meticulous in the way he cared for me. You know, um, yeah. Um, and then there was the older Bible woman who was who was the most exquisitely caring mother, you know. And so the one Bible woman took care of Orlando West and Mzumklope in Elizabethville, and uh, Mother Matsinia took part of that in Orlando East Baraguanath. And then I also had the coloured area, which was Nürtgesich. Um And that was 1988, 89, 90, you know, they were difficult years, you know. And um, when you say that you were going to give communion to the other, so who was the other? The other people who were traumatized, okay. you know, and had to had to journey with with. And, and you must know, I was going through a a fairly cataclysmic paradigm shift in terms of worship in terms of culture, in terms of language, in terms of everything that I was trying to learn in this space. You mentioned at the service in, that we attended in Melrose, the, the, the act of going to give the Eucharist to these very vulnerable people, that something profound happened in, mm. that, in that moment for you. The language you used was something like, like life exploded in you, something like that. That's quite profound for you to be in that cataclysmic state but then to go and be of service, because when you're that traumatized, I mean, what can you do, you know? And yet, off you went with the Bible woman to give the Eucharist. And and and, and I, I was hoping you would say something about that that act and, and what it meant for you and what it did for you. Well, you know, the, the profound violation of my person you know, in in what Mrs. Mandela put out into the press, you know, and the unconditional access into the sacred space of a shut-in was like medicine for my humanity, for my soul, for my sense of belonging, you know. Um, I was prepared, projected into the press by Mrs. Mandela as this pariah, as this um, whatever, vicious opportunist. And I was given in that very community the respect and the love, and the acceptance, and the the expectation that I had to minister. 
sorry to even ask you about mm. it because it's so it's such an exceptionally painful mm. part of your life, and I think because you're a public public figure, we we feel our public figures. You know, I ask out of a sense of respect for your the vastness of your your capacity. You know that you survived mm. that, and then you survived the next onslaught, which was the the central the whole. That, that um, which I imagine you were much more robust by then. Um, <laughs> What's really? happened? Yeah. <laughs> but or desensitized. Mm-hmm. You know? do, do you think so? Um, well, you know, standing away from it, what, what's valuable about your question is that one doesn't necessarily think about what is shifting my sanity here. You know what I mean? So to be asked, you know, what specifically, what did it? And I think it was relationship. It was a space to speak about the stuff. It was, but it was also the the accompanying other people in their places of of death and, and brokenness that uh, enabled, I think, a sanity for me. Earlier I mentioned the media storm around him in 2015. He had sheltered over 3,000 refugees and vulnerable people in the Central Methodist Church in downtown Johannesburg. Government had failed in their mandate to deal with the refugees. Local business and municipality was furious with him. There were health hazards and the whole situation seemed to be out of control. When I stand this side of what happened at Central, and I think of the kind of virulent criticism of what I was doing and my complete... I mean, there was just no choice. I mean, it, it actually... Uh, it must, does it sound hugely insane? didn't bother me. The criticism? No. I must be honest with you. I mean, the uh, the presiding bishop of the time came in and criticised me about... Um, I, I can't remember what he criticised. And I can remember getting so angry with him that um, he was just completely silenced. I think I traumatised him with what I said in the three sentences. I can't remember what they were. But um, there, there wasn't that much of a choice. There was a building... There were people who were profoundly broken and needy. And, I mean, how, how could I do anything different? I'm really interested in what, um, what enabled you to keep going. Because, say, the classic case, say you've got a counsellor who becomes um, traumatised by, you know, gets vicarious mm. trauma and then goes down the tubes. And generally the rule is that that those people can't work anymore. They need to take a break and um, and some and sometimes even withdraw from from doing that work. But you did the opposite. You went in there, you know, into the traumatized space as a traumatized person. And I think that's very interesting of how you you emerged. I mean, your your relational framework was clearly. Um, you know, uh, set these these pillars around you to hold you up and pull you up, and um, so that was obviously very powerful. But but my suspicion is, funnily enough, that it's something in your spiritual practice 
you know, and your relationship with God and your philosophy and your theology um, as well. That, that, that's the key part of this. I think it is, you know. I mean, so for instance, um, in the Stompy thing, even though I don't think that my family understood it, there was no question about their unquestioning love for me. And even in the central thing, um, there were some, a few people who, who, you know, just loved me through it, you know. And, and so make 100% certain that there are friendships that have made an alternative narrative for me a possibility and have made it work. Does it make sense? Absolutely. You know, and I suppose that's something of the Bible woman, you know. I mean, they, Johnny Will faithfully came to the manse, and despite the fact that this pariah was the person that they had to work with, they, Johnny Will, took me to these places. And, and it wasn't a sentimental kind of, you know, uh, there was, I become much more sentimental and sad about it and profoundly moved by it now as I reflect on it. Uh, but really it was that that kept me sane, you know. Yeah. And I think that people like Ruth Rice and Michael Rice and Peter Storey and Terry Sacco and Martin Connell and those people who watched me like a hawk, you know, um, but provided a safe space for my insanity. <laughs> We're at a Sunday evening church service at the Soweto Community Centre. About 50 residents and their children, all refugees, are in the echoing hall. People are vulnerable, poor. There are multiple signs of distress. But there is community, worship, and there is singing. And that's a lot of what happens in this place. I mean, there is a, there is a richness that is concealed from the world. Um, there is a, you know, there is a depth of humanity that, that's almost part of the rhythm of breathing in the place that is completely concealed. And so, so for instance, don't be fooled by the, the rumours that go around Soweto, a dangerous place and then, and then. Uh, and yes, there are places, and I'm, I'm not that stupid, but there are places of the most exquisite humanity uh, that, that I, I suppose it's basically that, that rekindles one's faith in, in, in truth and in, in those immovable qualities of our being. Uh, maybe also just to go back, I suppose some of the stuff around the the communion, um, you know, the words of the consecration, if one permits them space in one's imagination and doesn't, and one doesn't allow 
one's cynicism to contaminate them. The Lord Jesus, in the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when you take the communion to somebody who has lost connection because of illness, because of whatever, those words that are said in the whole big gathering of the congregation create a connection of belonging that contradicts rejection and the violence of hatred. You know, and I, I mean, it's every Wednesday night we would have a healing service at Central. Absolutely simple. No, no preaching, uh, a reading from the Bible and the communion and people coming forward and being anointed with oil. And no, no paraphernalia, just, just that. Um, and that gave me more than it gave to any other congregation. You know. What you're describing is, 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 um, is providing a ritual um, or a, a moment um, where people can come forward to gain connection and to be uh, perhaps reunited with their human family. And even at this morning service, this very simple service there were people who were who had the courage to step forward and ask for healing and be moved to tears and be renewed to move on it's um i mean it is phenomenal it's powerful you know please speak about the mystery of working with and ministering to the poor and vulnerable now i've got two quotes from you which um which are very interesting. The journey to the marginalized has incredible potential. That's the one. And secondly, this, this one struck me. Um, what creates alienation is the place that can open the door for God to minister to us. So I imagine this is, you know, this, to me this feels very core to how you work and how you minister. You're largely oriented to vulnerable people. I may be incorrect. Please, please correct me if I'm wrong. But I'm I'm interested in that as a as a spiritual position and as spiritual work. And it's not to be a consumer or opportunistic about it, like oh it's great to work with vulnerable people because I get a great spiritual experience. That's not what I'm I'm saying. I'm trying to inquire into the the mystery of that. I think that the journey to the the marginalized at some level, for me at any rate, is a journey to the essence of the reason of God's compassion. And it is in that journey that, in a strange way, one is on a journey into oneself. There is a, there is a strange, complex simplicity in the marginalized. So, your marginalized for me will exercise your intellect to its 
to its ultimate? Well, it, it reminds me of my observation of your life, you know. I, I see you moving through the world with such joy and delight and and vigor and vitality and, and curiosity and commitment. And I think that's remarkable for, for all that you faced with, all the difficulty and the, the terrible um, material that you witness probably daily or, you know, multiple times a day, I'm quite sure, with all of the, the vulnerable and wounded people that you minister to. Um, it's remarkable that you still are able to be effusive with your love of life. But you know where that comes from. I mean, it comes from the others. It really does. What do you mean? Well, for instance, I've never done... I've never... I've had very little experience of prison work. And now, all of a sudden, Pretoria Central Prison opens up. And uh, one begins to journey with the brokenness of that society and that community. And, and it's, it's, it's really... Yes, I know, you know. I know that those people have done the most dreadful stuff. They happen to have been caught, you know, and it's a conglomeration of of all that sickness in that place. But it's it's holy ground, you know. Why is it holy ground? Because there are people in that place, first of all, who are wanting to shift a paradigm. Because their guilt is so obvious to the whole world that there can't be a space for redemption. And yet, that's that's the workshop of redemption. If we don't begin to start getting it right there, God knows what the worth of it is outside. And lies don't work that well there. Hypocrisy is meaningless. If a shift is going to be made, you've got to you've got to begin to start dealing with the reality of who you are, as as a prisoner and as a worker, therapist, whatever it is in the place. But you see, I mean, there are, there are prisons all over the place. So you look at those those little people in that service today, and some of their mischief and fidgeting and in this holy place, you know what I mean? Thank God for them, you understand? And and that in that dreadful, and I'm not romanticizing that informal settlement because I, there have been murders there, there are rapes there, there is horrible stuff in that place. There is stuff in that place that is just too ghast. I mean, at, and at some level it's a torture camp. But... When you look at that that community and you look at Porsche, you know, where a car costs a million rand, and just one car would transform that entire community, then there's another level of criminality that's going on in this place that we can't protect our imagination from. And if we do, we will live in corpses.
I asked Paul what he would do if he was given the mandate to work with that community at Clay Oven Informal Settlement. Well, you know, part of the reason that it's still there is because I brought in lawyers for human rights and you're not allowed to remove people unless you have an alternative. You're with me. So the, and the, the council is very angry with me for that. You're with me. And I'm unapologetic about that. Because I'm hoping that they will find a decent place for them to move to. You know, just listen to this. You know, you saw those little people there. Now, there are quite a few children in that camp. And you've got St. Peter's Preparatory School just opposite there. Would it absolutely kill them to open up the space to include those little people and bring them into the... It's not, you know... They don't even have to have a uniform, really, because that's not what education is about. And can you imagine what you could explode as you begin to start getting a, a really good foundation to those kids in education? I don't think that we've even begun to imagine that wealth could be such an imprisoning thing. That our insecurities can ultimately make us so profoundly selfish. It's a very strange world we live in. I'm continually shocked by the generosity of African people to white people. That this, yeah. like we arrive at the church service this morning and are embraced without question. Literally, yeah. physically embraced. Oh, but I was going to tell you. Now, was it not fascinating? That church service. Because there you could see... And I spoke about it in my sermon because it was so obvious that here are the important people. I'm very important here. And all you riffraff at the back over there. You know, and so, so the, 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 the structured church creates the us and them. Those who fit in and those who don't. Those who come to church with the only possession which they've got is their blanket. And the rest of us all pranced up in our uniforms. Yeah. And, and I think that one of the most important responsibilities of the so-called church, and I'm going to call it the so-called church, is to liberate God's imagination in in the community. So that we, we, that community that gathered there is every much a church community as the richest people gathered in the most fancy building wherever they may be. In actual fact, I've got a very horrible suspicion that God might have been more present on that little hillside today than in many other places. I think the essence of what I'm trying to say is that the prevailing values are to be found where people have been stripped of all the paraphernalia that they put around them as value. To be found in the, the truth of our relationships. The simple dignity of, of 
a life that cannot be contradicted by poverty. It is the, the ability of the human spirit still to hope in the pitch darkness that there must be a light somewhere. And one discovers that again and again and again in that journey. And what there can't be any greater privilege than that, truly. To to witness that and receive it and walk with someone as they as they venture out mm. from that point. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Mm. And that, that I could imagine is is a source of great joy. Mm. And privilege. Well, yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah, exactly that. You know, essentially, apartheid was about marginalizing 80% of your nation. 75% of them are still marginalized. Because we have manipulated the, the narrative into creating an upper black class that just mollifies what we saw today. And it's when one begins to start seeing the interaction between the upper classes and the complete irrelevance of the preferential option for the poor. And really, you must really understand that the really poor are right off the radar. They are they political fodder in preparing for elections, but that's all that they are. Okay, I'm going to come. And with that, he was off to his next commitment. Thank you, Bishop Varane, for your openness, your willingness to speak of such very personal matters. Thank you also to the Rooibokklachter B Assemblies of God Youth Choir for the opening song and to Eyewitness News for permission to use their clip. If you'd like to hear more of our work, please visit and like our Facebook page, Stories from the Wild. Until next time.